Luke chapters 3 and chapter 4 uh, this morning. Um, we might be here for a long time uh, as uh, two chapters in one Sunday uh, might be a little intense for us. Uh, but that's all right. We will get through 3 and 4. So, um, we, this is, uh, I guess, Sermon 3 as we are working through the entire book of Luke. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll be done by the end of the year. Of course, doing a chapter to two chapters a week is, is pretty good. So we're trying to fly, kind of set the stage here again, we're trying to fly a little bit of a different altitude across Scripture. So, like when we went through Colossians, we flew very close to the ground. So we were, you know, three or four verses a week. And, uh, and then when we went through Ecclesiastes, we were um, about a chapter a week, a little less than a chapter a week. And then uh, when we did our overview of the whole Bible, we were like books of the Bible in one week um, and, uh, and tried to do that in about nine weeks. And so now we're trying to fly um, in this narrative at a little bit of a higher level where we're doing about a chapter a week. But that's, that's really about the way, um, one of the best ways, I, I think, to teach and preach through um, a gospel considering it's primarily narrative. Uh, we have some parables and things like that, uh, which are very similar to narratives as well. Um, but the problem, the, the, not the problem, but this, when we work through narratives uh, of Scripture, we have to be careful the altitude that we do fly through those, because a lot of people will try to fly at a very low altitude through a narrative, and so they'll drive into a detail of the narrative and, and somehow draw some sort of application point from some very little detail and if, and if you know anything about Bible interpretation, that's not how we understand narratives, uh, nor do we understand parables that way. There's typically one kind of main thrust of that story. Uh, now, there might be things in that story. So, like, for instance, if we see Jesus doing something a certain way in a story, then we need to look at how we might be able to imitate Christ in that story. So, that's a, he's living an example. We know that Christ is perfect, and anything Christ does, that that uh, there's a level of imitation or replication that, that should take place in our lives. Um, but if we see, you know, the Pharisees doing something in the story, maybe that's not something that we want to imitate. Uh, but instead, we want to look. But, but beyond that, when we read narratives, we want to pull away. What is it that is being reflected about God in this passage? What is it that's being told about God? Because remember, all of Scripture is a revelation of God. Uh, it's Him revealing Himself to us, primarily through action as recorded in Scripture. And so we want to walk away going, what is it that we learn about God, and then how do we live in light of the character of God, right? Because we want to tie all of our actions to a theology, and that's ultimately going to be tied to the character of God. But many Christians just live life, I just, I'm supposed to act this way because the Bible says so. Well, the issue is, is that the Pharisees lived and did what the Bible said to do, but they never found the gospel. And so it's not, we can't, it's not good enough just to say, well, I'm supposed to live this way because the Bible says so. But I think it's, we live this way because the Bible says so, because ultimately the Bible says so, because it ultimately reflects the character of God. And so the what we do then is, is not, doesn't stop right here, it goes back to the character of God. So the character of God is revealed in Scripture 
And then that then is where we live our lives out of that guidance given by Scripture, but ultimately it comes from the character of God. So we have to make sure that we live in light of the character of God uh, and not just, because here's the deal, if we live just because the Bible said to do it, uh, then ultimately we'll end up becoming legalistic uh, and we have no need for the gospel because we can live all the right actions. But instead, when we, when we tie everything back to the character of God, we understand that our actions are not good enough but instead that our hearts have to be changed, which only God can do, then that brings about then the rightful actions done not in a legalistic way. So as we look through this, particularly in the Gospels, we get to look and peer into the life of Jesus. And, and, and in Jesus, of course, we know, or we believe anyways, is the Son of God. So in this, we get to see God revealed in physical action on this earth. So we started off with the series by asking the question, who, who is Jesus? Um, and I encourage us all to set aside our baggage and preconceived notions and maybe even our traditions and go, what does Scripture say about Jesus? See, many times when we approach Scripture, we try to bring things into it or, or eisegete the text, right? We try to take our experience and, and shove that into the text or we take our tradition and shove that into the text and, and that's not good, uh, rightful Bible understanding or interpretation. We, we need to go, what does the text say about Jesus and then how does that then interpret my experience in the life around me? The Word of God being then the final authority, not my life and not my emotions and not my perception. So, I encourage us to start with what is Luke telling us about Jesus? What do we see? You know, to our friends and family, uh, maybe co-workers and stuff, to many people, Jesus was, was just simply a good teacher. Or maybe he was a model for us to follow. Does anybody hear this around? Well, Jesus was a good teacher. Right? Um, I mean, very quickly, if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, then he's not a good teacher, right? Because uh, then what he taught was very wrong and lies. Uh, but, anyways, people think he's a good teacher, a model for us to follow. Uh, most people will say he's at least a good person. Um, Thomas Jefferson said this as far as Christ. He says, I am a Christian in the only sense. Jesus Christ wanted anyone to be. Uh, so for Thomas Jefferson, Jesus was simply a model for life. Um, he was not this great Christian that we think of many of our forefathers, but uh, Jesus was simply a model or someone to act like to Thomas Jefferson. Um, so that's maybe to some of our friends and family, and, but the thing is, is maybe for many of us, functionally, we live this way as well, where Jesus is nothing more practically than a good teacher for us or someone for us to imitate. Um, maybe he's not our Savior. Maybe he's not our Lord. Um, and so fun like we would mentally assent to that, but functionally live as though he's just nothing more than someone for me to act like. And so... Just because we give ourselves, the, give ourselves the label as Christian doesn't mean that we're living with Christ as any more than just a model for us to follow. So I want us to think about that. When you view Christ, who is Christ to you? Uh, and we want to go then to Scripture and say, well, how does Scripture say Christ should be to us? 
how is he defined by his revelation or his work? And I want to encourage us as we work through this, that the question should not just be, what would Jesus do? Right? WWJD, anybody ever have or wear one of those bracelets? Yeah. Now, no joke. Middle, uh, for me, elementary school is when those came out, WWJD bracelets. And, and I never wore one, never have, never did, did not. And in elementary school, my thoughts were this. Um, when other people wear those, I see them do very bad things. Uh, and I don't think that that's the way Jesus lived. And so I didn't want to wear one and be associated with that same group. Uh, now, maybe you guys lived around more perfect people, but uh, I did not. And so I was like, yeah, I'm not going to wear these. Um, plus, I also, you know, if I got in trouble, I didn't want that to represent Jesus. And uh, so, uh, but instead of just the question being, what would Jesus do? I think we need to ask the question, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? And that's going to be kind of the guiding question this morning as we work through uh, Luke chapters 3 and 4. And understand that what Jesus did is always tied to who Jesus is. So what Jesus did or what God does is always tied to who God is, right? Because God always acts consistently with who he is. We do not, right? So we can say one thing and then do a different action, but God does not. So the, beauty, the beautiful thing about that is if we want to understand God's character so that we can live in light of God's character, then oftentimes we're going to look at what God does, and that's going to then reveal God's character. Because it's always consistent. So what God says, He will always do, and what God does is always consistent with who He is. So as we see God revealed in Scriptures, we want to ask the question, what did Jesus do as we work through Luke chapters 3 and four. So in these chapters, Jesus' life and ministry was the focus of the predictions of the Old Testament. Okay? So the Old Testament pr- predicts all these things about Jesus. We just studied through a lot of that. He is the one that God had promised, right? Jesus is the one that God had promised, and we see who Jesus was and what he came to do in these passages. Who he was and what he came to do. So in chapters 3, just to give us an overview of where we're going today, chapter 3, we see the conclusion of who Jesus is. All right, so Luke 1, 2, and 3, my son is in there crying, um, but uh, I'm not going to try and pay attention to it. Luke 1, 2, and 3 is chapters on who Jesus is, and then in chapter 4, we see the beginning of what Jesus did. So we're going to kind of bridge that gap today. Who Jesus was, chapters 1, 2, 3, and then what Jesus did starting in chapter 4. So we'll really begin to see the beginning of Jesus' ministry in chapter 4. So the first thing we see is this, that Jesus is the predicted one. So we're talking about who Jesus is still. We see Jesus is the predicted one. So preparation was being made for Jesus to come. The way was being prepared for Jesus. Luke begins with the fulfillment of a prophecy that was given in Isaiah from several centuries before. Let's read this prophecy, Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5. It says this, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain 
and he'll be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right, so that's Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5. I just wanted to give you that prophecy first. Now we're going to go back to Luke 3 and begin reading here where our text begins today. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God, all right, here we go, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So as we know, John's in the wilderness at this point. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, What and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. But John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is, is, in, sorry, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. So a few things to note. A few things to note here. First of all, the idea of preparing the way. This is what John is doing. He's preparing the way. It's kind of like preparing for an exam or preparing a room for a visitor. Uh, basically kind of getting things ready. In the ancient world during this time, before a king would come visit an area, like a city that he had rulership over, uh, they would actually go through and make the roads, like repair potholes and, and get the roads ready for the king to, to make his entrance. They were preparing, literally, the way for him to come. So John's job was to call attention to the Lord's coming and to prepare them morally and spiritually. So John 
is saying, I'm preparing the way, or the Bible's talking about John preparing the way, and he's doing so not in a physical sense, but in a moral and spiritual sense. And it's interesting here, if we're talking about Jesus as good teacher, someone to follow versus the Lord, um, Luke tells us that he's preparing the way for the Lord. And not the Lord as in like a king, or that kind of like earthly Lord, but as in the Lord. He's preparing the way for the Lord, or the Lord's way. Meaning he's preparing the way for God himself. I think Luke is clearly indicating here that he's not just an example of how we are to live, but God himself is about to hit the scene. God himself is about here. But what's interesting is as we look through this, as, as, as he's prepared the way, the second thing that we should note is that Herod is not very happy about this warning from God through John. So John gives this warning. Herod's not having any of it. He's not happy. Herod responds by throwing John into jail. And I want to encourage us. I think one thing that we can learn from the text here at this point is don't be like this. Don't be like Herod. Don't respond this way when you are warned of sin in your life and you are told the truth. So what happens is John is calling them to repentance. And Herod is told the truth about the repentance needed in his life. And he doesn't like it. And I think the warning or an application point for us at this point is don't be like this. If you're familiar with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great preacher, he says this. A man is in a sad state when he hates the ministry that is meant to lead him to repentance. A man is in a sad state when he hates the ministry that is meant to lead him to repentance. Um, and I think we have to be careful that we don't so harden ourselves, uh, our hearts, that we miss when we're being called to repentance. Um, and we haven't so justified or exercised self-justification that we now begin to write off any warnings of sin and repentance needed in our lives. So if Jesus here is predicted, is the predicted one for whom the way was prepared, then we must prepare also then the way for him as well. This is part of our role. Like Jesus is on the scene already, but we are to prepare the way as well. And how does that work for us? I would say this. It is loving to be clear about those things that must be renounced if you want to follow Christ. Now, uh, I understand some people don't like this. Some people even leave the church because they think it's not our role to warn people of sin. So what are we talking about here? Are, I mean, are we out getting the roads ready for Jesus to come walk? No, our role is on the flip side of that. So if Jesus has come and His kingdom is here already but not yet, right? so it's not in its fulfillment yet because He has come then we are part of bringing that kingdom about. That doesn't mean that we go around beating people over the heads with Bibles, right? We talked about this. Uh, but it means that we want to see the kingdom of God become a reality in, the li- in our lives and the lives of those around us. So that that looks like is people being God's people and living in God's place underneath His rulership. And obviously that has to start with us. Um. Are you guys familiar with the sermon, famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Anybody familiar with that sermon? Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, I know in our high school, I had a Christian teacher who made everybody read that sermon 
I don't know that that was the most appropriate uh, thing to do, but nevertheless, I applaud her for her intentions. Uh, but sinners in the hands of an angry God has seemed to be, as by many people, as a harsh, like, meanful thing to say. That, um, but if you, if you believe what is at stake, if you believe in the reality of hell, then what's going on here by Jonathan Edwards is actually quite loving. It's a warning. It's kind of like this. If you imagine your best friend or your wife or your child standing on a railroad track, right? He's headed for destruction. Would you not push him off the railroad track when that train comes? Would that not be loving? Would it be loving to let them sit there and do that and like get hit? Is that loving? No. The loving thing is to warn them. Now, again, the way we do this, I, I, you know, I think there's more careful ways to do this than, like, for instance, I was in Newport, Kentucky the other week, and there were street preachers, like, on the corner, you know, just y- hollering stuff out. And I'm like, dude, you're about to offend me. Like, and I'm a preacher, man. This is just ridiculous. Like, all, he, all they did was make the people down there, like, super mad. Now, I, I understand, like, when we teach the Word of God, it's going to offend people. I got that. But, like... Did Jesus ever do that? I, I just don't. I just don't see any example in Luke, John, of Jesus standing if, if, when he does do something similar to that. You have to look at the context, right? The context when he offends people from a public platform is the religious leaders, right? I mean, we'll even see that in this passage. It's the religious leaders that he does that to, but those people that so in this context. The street preachers were not yelling at religious people. It was a mixture of who knows who, right? Like, I mean, yeah, I'm a a religious leader, and I'm standing there, but, like, none of the other people, they knew that. So the question is, who did Jesus, the people that were not religious leaders, how did Jesus engage them primarily? It was by having dinner with them, right? It was by sitting down with them. It was by healing. It was by helping them. It's a quite a bit different look than, here, let me yell this stuff. Even though it's true. I mean, what they were saying was true when they were reading from Romans. Uh, I mean, it was true, but was it helpful at that point? I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I mean, maybe someone was affected in a positive way. I just I doubt that it was largely that way. But So how can then we warn and I think that what that looks like, and I'm going to address this a couple times today, but if we think about what does the kingdom of God look like? What, is, what does Scripture describe the kingdom of God should look like, right? God's people in God's place under God's rule, and, and, and marriage should look this way, and, and relationships should look this way, and communication should look this way, right? Like, for example, communication. How would we say God's kingdom determines how communication should look? Well, if we understand God as the first one to speak words and God is the one who created words, then we understand then that every word that comes from our mouth is not owned by us, but is owned by God. Like when we speak, God is the one who created words. So our communication then should be reflective of the character of God. So that's what the kingdom of God should have. So one of the characteristics of the kingdom of God is that it should have words then that reflect the character of God. I'm not, I'm, now I'm not getting in the spiel of whether we should cuss or not. It's a whole different topic. But I'm saying like our, our words, our kindness in the words, the graciousness in the words, 
the intelligence of our words, like, should be guided by the character of God. So, if we think about what's the kingdom of God look like, then we look at the lives around us and go, what does their kingdom look like? And then we take those two and set them up next to each other and go, where do they not line up? Where do they not match? And wherever this one does not match the kingdom of God, then that's where the, Holy, that's where the gospel needs to be inserted. Right? That's where the kingdom of God can take place in that person's life. That's where we speak about Christ and, and the repentance and change and, and glory that, that God has brought about through Jesus and can change their life and situation. So that was not in, all in my notes, but um, as a little subset there. So it's loving to be clear about the things that must be renounced if you want to follow Christ. And what I don't mean by that is that we have to change who we are to follow Christ. No, the change comes from the heart, but there is a level of submission that in the beginning when we say Christ, you know, I, redemption, yes, I want that. And then a change that comes place. If we look at Luke 14, Jesus very clearly tells them to pick up their cross and follow him. So I don't think that it's any specific thing that has to be uh, given up necessarily, but that the actions of our life reflect the submission to God. Does that make sense? Okay, I think so. All right. But repentance is a necessary response that saves. So when we repent, this is, um, is a, it's a necessary response in the salvation that takes place in our hearts. And, and John is warning the people um, I don't think what John is saying here is that we have to give up all these things in order to be saved. I think he's drawing a distinction here between I'm baptizing you with water, but Jesus is going to baptize you with the Spirit. So I don't think that this, this, in the same category that John is saying, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this in order to be saved. I think the picture he's painting is the same picture the law paints, and that is we're unable to do these things that John is saying. And that we need God to rescue us from our inability to do these things. And that comes by ultimately submitting to Him. So I don't think that John is giving us one way of salvation and then Jesus comes and gives us another. I think it's John is giving us the same thing that the Old Testament has been teaching all along. Remember, because Jesus hasn't come yet. So John, as a good Jew, is operating on the thoughts of the Old Testament, which was to show us our inability, show us the character of God, and then our inability to do that therefore needing a heart transformation from the inside out. This was what Jesus will do. And this is what John is pointing to, is again to our moral and spiritual need for a Savior, for this repentance. So the next description of Jesus that we see here going on in Luke chapter 3, uh, the first one is Jesus as a predicted one, the second one is Jesus is identified by God as His own Son. He's identified by God as his own son. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also bap- was, uh, I'm sorry, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So very quickly as we work through this, here in verse 22, God says, you are my son. 
I mean, so what, what's significant about this? What's significant because God is claiming him as his son. I mean, so there's a, there's a level of deity here. But the other thing is that God is owning Jesus publicly. I think that's a big deal. Considering the context and what's happening, Jesus had been baptized, but God owns him publicly now after this baptism. Now, a couple things I want us to note here in the text. Notice the Trinity. Right? Notice the presence of all three persons of the Trinity here at this point. God Himself exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, there's many heresies concerning the Trinity. Um, like there's an ancient one called modalism, where God was God and then He became God the Son, ceasing to be God the Father. Then he became God the Son, and then he ceased to be God the Son in order to become God the Holy Spirit, and that happened at the Ascension. Um, the church in general, uh, like church universal or at large, has um, basically rejected that uh, heresy for many, many years now. Uh, still certain preachers out there uh, that teach that, uh, one of which uh, T.D. Jakes, if you know who T.D. Jakes is, but supposedly he renounced that belief and has has now ceased being a heretic when it comes to the trinity uh and has he's accepted i think the the bright view that god has existed eternally in all three parts and here we see i i think proof against modalism in that god is here present as three people at the same time and again we don't have time to work through all that i know it's really hard but um but here, God has existed in, in three parts. So um, I think this shows us a couple things. One is that God is distinct from the world. So if we see God here in three persons. I think something we see here is that God is distinct from the world, that He is the Creator. We see here that God is not dependent upon the world for a full and happy life. Um, we see, and, and I'm kind of branching out of Luke here a little bit, but but clearly, so we see the Father as three, and we've talked often about the communion experience between the Trinity and the happiness and the joy between the Trinity. Um, has anybody ever heard a teacher say that God created man because he was lonely and wanted man to worship him? Anybody heard that? Anybody? A couple of us have. I, I have, I have. It's terribly wrong. Uh, I think we have, here we have the Holy Spirit. They were in community. And if you look at the, the, the overview of the Bible, we don't see that God was unhappy uh, and that He needed us to somehow fulfill Him. I, I want to read you this quote uh, by an author named Matt Chandler from his book Explicit Gospel. He says this, Have you heard this line of thinking before? Talking about God was lonely, He needed us. Uh, he says, It's a very sweet idea. And it would be a great slogan for a Christian motivational poster if it weren't for what the Bible actually teaches, which is that this idea is almost blasphemous. Are we to believe that God and His infinite perfection was lonely? And that the response to this loneliness was to create a bunch of glory thieves? Is that the, inf is that the infinite God's solution to this hypothetical imbalance of His relational well-being? This is what many of us have been led to believe. And out of our self-regard, we like to picture that a holy, glorious, splendid God 
perfect solely in his Trinitarian awesomeness, wanted to be able to stand in a warm-hued living room, romantic music swelling, and look across at us and say, you complete me. Uh, This is the God that we want, right? No, we don't want this God. We don't want this God that was lacking something and then needed us. So I think we see God is distinct here. God is distinct. He's God in three persons. He is distinct from his creation. Um, We see that Jesus was not just a good teacher, that he was and is the fully divine, eternally existing Son of God. See, Jesus owning him as, or God owning Jesus as his Son at this point. So we see that Jesus was fully God, as God claims him as his Son, But that also we see at this point in the text that he became fully man. So we need to we're gonna talk, we're gonna talk just for a few moments about Jesus' baptism. What does Jesus' baptism mean? What was it a part of? I think his baptism was a part of Christ's humiliation. We talk about Christ humbling himself, not being embarrassed, but lowering himself to come to earth. And that ultimately his baptism, in order to understand his baptism rightly, it's not Jesus repented and then needed baptism, but what is Jesus, let me ask you, what, what is Jesus doing at this point? What do you think Jesus is doing in his baptism? What's, what's happening there? What do you think? What do you think? Anybody? Anybody? That's all right. All right. So, what's happening, I think when Jesus is baptized... He is identifying with us. So when we are baptized, we are identifying with Him as well. I mean, because if you think about baptism, again, this is a side note. Baptism is always where Jesus commands us to baptize them into the name. That's not a, it's not a command, as some people believe that when I baptize, I have to say in the name of Jesus, you're baptized. That's just stupid. Uh, I mean, we, we do say something similar to that, but that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is that your identity's changed. Like when you changed names, your identity is changed. That's the whole point. And so when he's baptized, we're baptized into the name of Jesus, our identity is changing. We are now in the identity of Jesus, not like we're now covered by the blood of Christ. So when Jesus is being baptized, now he's identifying with us. And think about this. This is God, the Son of God. This is Him identifying with who? Sinful people. This is a big deal. This is not just Jesus wanted to be cool and baptized just to set an example for something ritualistic for us to do. This is Jesus setting, identifying with us. It's a big deal. The God of the universe identifying with sinful man. So the eternal Son of God decided to lay aside his rights and privileges in order to bring salvation to you and to me. Um, He came in love seeking us. And here we see him identifying with us. And eventually he'll take the sins of all those who trust in him on himself as he identifies with us. Isaiah 53, if you want to look that up later, talks about he was pierced by our transgressions. So those whom he identified with, he will later bear the price, and will later bear the sin and the punishment for those sins. So I think Jesus' humiliation largely begins here at baptism, where he is humbling himself and identifying with those people. So he who knew no sin took on the public sign 
of our needing repentance, right? So the act of baptism, it shows a number of things. Identity, we talked about that. But it shows the fact that we needed repentance, right? So we had to repent. And baptism, again, we don't believe that baptism is what saves us. It's just a symbol, right? And so it's symbols. It's, it's, it's identifying us with something new. So baptism then, uh, though it, one thing it symbolizes is that we needed to repent. So here Jesus identifies with those who needed to repent. So we see Jesus as a predicted one. We see Jesus publicly claimed by his Father. And the last thing we see as far as the identity of Jesus is that Jesus was the son of David. Jesus was the son of David. You go, what, what's this, why is this important? All right. So here is where we're going to do what many preachers will not do, and that's read the genealogy. So we're going to read the genealogies because there's probably not too many times we'll get to read these, but... So Luke chapter 3, verse 23, let's begin. Jesus, when he began his ministry, and I want you to pay attention, look for key names as we work through this genealogy. <clears throat> Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of, and I'm going to butcher all these just for the record, okay? Son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadon, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elikim, the son of Meli, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. The son of Jesse, but he does not stop, right? Son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, or Salah, the son of uh, Noshon, the son of Amadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arm, uh, Arni, Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, and he does not stop the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sherag, the son of Reu, the son of Pelag, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Erphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Nathaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and then the son of God. I think Luke is telling us at least two things in this genealogy, and people who understand genealogies much better than myself probably have more, but I think at least two things that Luke is telling us here in the genealogy. One is pretty obvious, that Jesus is the son of David. That Jesus' mission, though, is reaching all of creation here. If you look at the other genealogies given, I think by Matthew particularly, he stops at Abraham. But Luke doesn't stop at Abraham. 
Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And I think that that's important because I think what's getting ready to happen as Luke's going to recount for us is that Jesus' concern is not just for the Jews and never has been just for the Jews, but is for all of creation. So he goes back before the chosen people who began with Abraham. So Jesus, though, in this point is fulfilling his promise, fulfilling God's promise concerning David. Second Samuel verse seven, sorry, Second Samuel chapter seven, twelve through thirteen says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, speaking of David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the, the throne of his kingdom forever. So he's talking to David here about the kingdom that will come through his lineage that will be established forever. And here we have Luke who is giving an account for, for Jesus who is legally a descendant of David. So he's physically a child of David. So this, this is the promise given in 2 Samuel coming true here in the Son of Christ, or the Son of God. So in verse 38, though, and it's interesting, Adam is called the Son of God. Luke calls Adam the Son of God. But think about this, though. He's not the Son of God in the way that Jesus is. Like, there was a time, think about this, there was a time when Adam was not, right? There was a time when Adam did not exist, and then God created Adam, and he came into existence. But we know, again, we have to look beyond Luke at this point, but we know that Jesus has existed eternally. And so he's the Son of God and has existed for all of eternity. So Luke is not saying here that Adam is Jesus, but he's drawing some parallels here for us between Adam and Jesus. So there's never been a time when Jesus was not. There was a time when Adam was not. But, but ultimately, well, I think one thing that Luke's doing here is he's showing us that Jesus is fulfilling the promise given to David. The second thing we see is that Jesus is the second Adam. Let me explain that. Um, so we see G- Adam as the head of the human race, and then Jesus beginning the new human race, the recreated race. And so Jesus, again, son of God, Adam, son of God, there's a think a parallel here but ultimately what we see then in Jesus is that his concern is not to just include the descendants of Abraham but to include all of the world that's good for you and I <laughs> that's majorly good for you and I of course we don't have time to go into this but I don't think God's concern has always just been for the Israelites I think it's been for the nations always I think that was the point of Israel in the Old Testament was to be a display of God to the world to be a blessing to the world it wasn't just for God to have this little group of people and the rest of them just to, to go. I think it was because of Israel's lack of obedience that then the mission of God to the rest of the world took so long to take place. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Jesus is the second Adam. In, in Him, new creation is beginning to take place. His Spirit gives us new birth. And, and, and here's the thing I want to say is that if Christ is the new one that we live underneath of and, and new creation is taking place, then um, that's where we should find our hope, right? For anything that we're struggling with, find our hope that Christ is renewing things in the life around us. All right. 
Let's move on to Luke 4. So that kind of finishes up who Jesus is, a predicted one. Uh, God claimed him as his son. He's also the son of David, fulfilling these promises. Um, so let's go to Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Excuse me. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him the kingdom of the world in the moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall, not worship the Lord, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And He took Him to Jerusalem, and set Him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, now throw, down, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Alright, so the first thing we see that Jesus came to do, right? So this is the beginning, right before the beginning, or right at the beginning, rather, of Jesus' ministry. So what did Jesus come to do? The first thing he came to do is to obey God. He came to obey God. Notice what Satan was doing. Notice what Satan was doing. Each of these challenges, he was tempting Jesus. And he says this, If you are the Son of God. Now don't think, I don't think that Satan at this point is trying to cast doubt into Jesus' mind of his identity. Like, are you the Son of God or are you not? I think, think Jesus and Satan both are smart enough and clearly knew that he was the Son of God. Matter of fact, if you look at the Greek language at this point, and the grammar there in Greek, it's more like, since you are the Son of God, do this. Uh, is more of the feel of the text at this point. Since you are the Son of God, do this. So I don't think Satan was tempting him to, to doubt his identity. I think all these temptations were about what Jesus would do. Like the kind of Messiah that he would be. Like what was going to be his concern in his Messiah, as the Messiah, what, was, what would he do? How would he fulfill his responsibilities as the Messiah? So the first temptation, Satan tempts him to turn his concerns to physical needs. I, I would encourage you to go back and look at these. We don't have time right now. But the second temptation, Satan tempts him to fulfill his mission by political power. Thirdly, his temptation, uh, he tempts Jesus to wow the current religious leaders. And I think from this we get a sense of what Jesus understood himself as coming to do. He did not come to fulfill physical needs only. He did not come to be some earthly power. He did not come to be the leader of some current religious power. Instead, he came to fulfill, personify, and exemplify a God-centeredness. An exclusive allegiance to God. A humble 
and obedient trust in the Heavenly Father. That's the kind of life, that's the kind of Messiah He came to be, to bring about spiritual change in those who would be His followers. So Israel, who's considered, the nation of Israel considered God's kind of first child, if you will, failed when they were tempted in the desert, right? Like, they did not succeed in the wilderness. Jesus did. Jesus did. So my question to you is, how are you being tempted today? If you're, if you're a Christian, if you're continuing to struggle with the same sin and you find yourself discouraged, be encouraged. But why? But why? Right? So be encouraged, but why? Some of our friends on TV would say, you know, just have a positive outlook on life and think good things and, and you'll be good. Is that what Jesus did? Did Jesus just have happy thoughts and then he began to fly like Peter Pan? I mean, is that what happened? No, he didn't do that. Um, consider, here, consider, again, be encouraged, but why? Let's look at Christ. Let's think about what's going on as Christ is tempted. We, we often think of the temptation of Christ and we go, well, I can relate to Jesus because he was tempted in every way that I was tempted, right? So, I mean, the Bible does tell us that. I think that's an important thing for us to remember. But I think we talk a lot about that and we miss something else very important here as we think about Christ and we think about Him and temptation and we think about us and temptation, if we're not careful, we miss if we only focus in on the fact that He was tempted in each way that we were or we are, I think we miss a big point. I think one thing that we miss is this. If you think about temptation, when we're in the face of temptation, that's a struggle, right? I mean, if you're really going after sin in your life and temptation is there, it's a struggle. What comes with struggle? Pain? Agony? Stress? And then what happens? So, so that's a battle, right? We're supposed to have, be at war with sin and the temptations in our lives. And it's painful. It's agonizing. But then what happens often? And I'm not trying to put us down, but what happens often? We give in. Right? The agony, we can't handle it. We stop. So we just give in. Now, but then we later face other agony from the consequences, but the agony and the struggle, the pain and the struggle, we just give in. And I would encourage you now when we think about Jesus, though, what happens? So he is now tempted, and, and this isn't the only time he's tempted, right? I mean, he's tempted plenty of other times, but, but he's tempted. There's the agony, there's the pain there's the struggle, whatever you want to call it, and he continues to endure that struggle and endure that pain as he's being tempted, and he continues to endure that struggle and endure that pain until what finally happens? He walks out on the other side. So where we only experience 70% of the pain and then give in to the temptation, Jesus does not. So I would encourage you, yes, Relate to Jesus in the fact that he has experienced temptation and, and the categories of temptation just as we do. But I would also encourage you to be encouraged by the fact that Jesus experienced the pain and the struggle and the temptation all the way to its fullest. So the struggle to like give in in the moment, Jesus didn't give in. And if you're being recreated in the image of him, 
and you have the Holy Spirit just as He does, we can make it through that temptation as well and come out on the other side. But the, the question, many times when we try to go through temptation and struggle, we try to do it on our own strength. We try to do it with you know, magic words and, and, verses that, and reciting verses that we don't even understand what they mean. And, and we try to rub the genie in the bottle to get through it and say a uh, magical prayer that we've said a thousand times, but again, it's just become words on our lips and we don't mean it from our hearts. And we don't stop to go, I have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me. My Savior Jesus, who, has, who is in the process of working me into something new, He faced temptation. He came out successful on the other side. And if I am a child of His, then Father, please give me the strength to work through this. To come out successful on the other side. And because my Savior did it, I know that I can as well. So Jesus, if you're a Christian, be encouraged. And that's why, not just to have good, happy thoughts, but to actually pray, see the character of Jesus as he successful in that, and then us ask God to do the same thing for us. If you're not a follower of Christ, every time you're tempted and succumb to that temptation, it is Satan reminding you of whose slave you really are. Freedom from the power of sin cannot be achieved by anything, not even your death. Understand that? Like when you die, you're not now free from sin and you just go to hell. We're never free from sin until through Jesus Christ and the power of Christ. Then we're free from that sin and no longer a slave to it. So, Jesus came to obey. Uh, Jesus also came to preach God's word. Jesus came to preach God's word. So Luke 4 verse 14 says this. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all uh, sorry, went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as, it, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So Jesus found this place, decided to read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, <laughs> there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up, I'm sorry, verse 25, but I tell you, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, 
but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in the Israel in the time of prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all these things, all the synagogue, all those in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And you're going, whoa, what, what just happened? Like he read from Isaiah. Why are they so mad? What's going on? Um, so let's kind of set the stage here. Jesus is teaching the synagogues. The synagogues were a public gathering place. The prophets would get to choose oftentimes something to read. Jesus chooses this passage. So he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. He reads this passage. When he sits down, he says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled. And he's clearly think, claiming to be the Messiah here at this point. He's claiming to be Jesus. They're, they're not, I don't think they're mad about that. It's as he began to claim God's concern for the Gentiles that they got mad. So, as he began, so when, if you look back, and you guys can go back and look at this, but the people that he's talking about when six months and this famine came about and Elijah never went there, but he went here instead, he was going to the places that the Jews didn't think he should have went. So what's happening here at this point is that Jesus is talking about them fulfilling and, and God being concerned about people that the Jews at this sitting here in the synagogue didn't think that God should have been concerned about. And those that God wasn't concerned about, the Jews thought God should be concerned about. So I would encourage us as we look at this, what is something that we can learn from this passage? And that is, be aware of taking offense at God's word. I mean, Jesus is just simply recounting for them history. God's word. Beware of taking offense at God's word. Now, uh, most often, I, I, I don't think for most of us the problem is going to come in when we read God's word. At least, like, at least for me, when I read God's word, there's, like, if I'm just sitting down reading, like, I'm usually not offended. I don't mean that to be boastful. But it's like, it's God's word, it says it, if I don't like it, then something's wrong with me. Where I typically get offended is when someone is teaching me God's word and then shows me, like, where it really hits my heart at, right? Um, so... So, and, uh, here's the caveat. In so much as that person is proclaiming the word of God, like, I should not be getting offended at that. So we should be careful. And I'm just, what I'm trying to warn you about is that the medium in which you receive the word might be different than just simply sitting down to read it. Okay? So for me, the med if I sit down in the medium of just reading it, it's like, it's God's words in black and white, okay, I'll just deal with it. Um, but if I hear it through a different medium, uh, a different method, I, I might be more prone to offense at that point. And I just want to warn us that we do not take offense at that as well. 
Next one, and we're about done here. Jesus came to free the captives from the power of Satan. This is something else that Jesus did. He came to free the captives from the power of Satan. Read it, Luke chapter 4, verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out in every, into every place in the surrounding region. Um, so what's happening here is the fulfillment of what he just got done talking, what Luke just got done talking about, with this idea of setting the oppressed free. This is part of the oppressed being set free. This is a fulfillment of this prophecy. And real quick, just to talk about demons and, and, and that, um, I, I do think this was possession. I think it was a demon. I think, just very briefly, very quickly, we often see this kind of spiritual activity, both possession and healing and all that, around times when more of God is being revealed to the earth. I mean, think about what's happening right now. The Son of God, for the first time ever, is walking on this earth. Do you think that Satan might be a little unhappy about that? Right? So there's going to be lots of spiritual activity. I mean, I'm not saying that we don't have any today. I think spiritual warfare is a big reality that we often overlook. But this kind of spiritual manifestation we see, if you study history, study the Word of God, is primarily around times when God, more of God is being revealed. So like His Word is coming forward. So that's when we see healings uh, much more than, than we do today. Because Not that we don't need healing today, but where we see them at in Scripture is when more of God is being revealed. And you say, well, why? I think because, number one, number one because Satan's not happy about it. Secondly, also, um, because when those things, those good things happen, like the miracles are happening, then it brings validity to the word that's being revealed. Right? So there's lots of activity going on right now as God is walking the place of this, on, the, on this planet. And so Satan's not happy, and then what happens is these displays then of God's power, I think, bring validity to the revelation of God's word as he walks. So, because I, th- I think the question you have to ask, if demons are all over the Gospels, shouldn't they be all over our experience today? And, and I would say not necessarily. You don't find people everywhere having the same experience. Even if you read the Bible, it doesn't happen all over the place. It does happen all over the place in the Gospels, but this is a, this is a certain period of time. If you read the rest of the Bible, it's not always happening. Like Even look at Paul. You don't have this kind of spiritual activity and this kind of healings going on just 15, 20, 30, 40 years after Jesus. We don't have that going on. Now, again, I'm not saying that there's n- absolutely, it just disappears completely, but I'm saying the, 
the amount of it, we see it collected in larger groups throughout history when more of God's word is being revealed. Um, so, uh, I, don't, I don't think we see it like this, at least in large part today. And we can talk about that later, but it's not a point, a hill I'm willing to die on. But just notice, though, this. This is a hill I'm willing to die on. The evil spirits shrink at the presence of Jesus. Okay? The evil spirits ran at the presence of Jesus. They melted away at the presence of Jesus. There's nothing outside of God's power. Our hope is in Jesus alone. Only he can set that man free. Right? So that's a hill I'm willing to die on. Jesus commands the evil spirits. Okay? Second to last point. I'm sorry, last point. Jesus came to heal sometimes. Jesus came to heal sometimes. All right, verse 38 of chapter 4. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve him. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. I watch this, watch. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So what do we, what do we see here? So by healing Simon's mother-in-law, Jesus was showing that he did come to heal. He did come to heal. But Jesus did not venture to this earth to always heal or to even primarily physically heal. Instead, Jesus gave priority to his teaching, to his proclaiming the kingdom. Notice that Jesus, now this is, I know this is funny, but notice that Jesus in these healings that he doesn't charge anybody for anything. That there's no offerings taken up when he does a healing. There's no hitting people on foreheads. There's not a production made of it, right? This is not what's happening. Jesus heals them. But then what happens is, notice that the people continue to come. They continue. I mean, who wouldn't, right? I mean, we're not, I'm not faulting the people. It's awesome. They see Jesus. They want to be healed, so they're coming. And notice it wasn't because of a lack of faith that Jesus didn't heal them. It wasn't because of anything they did wrong that Jesus didn't heal them, right? It's because Jesus had a higher priority to move on to. And that was the teaching of his word. It was for people to understand who Jesus was and who God was. And who Jesus is, who God is. That was his priority. It wasn't to heal them of this physical need. That wasn't his priority. He wasn't against it, but it wasn't his priority. It's the same thing today. 
When God chooses not to heal someone, it's not because there's necessarily a lack of faith. It's not because they didn't necessarily pray enough or that, you know, whatever. Maybe God has a higher priority in that person's life, and it doesn't involve their physical healing. In fact, I would say even amidst physical healing, there's always, even in that moment, a higher priority for God. And that is a spiritual healing. That that person would know God, trust God, love God, live for God. That's God's priority. And God may use that physical healing to bring about, I'm sorry, the lack of physical healing to bring about the spiritual healing. Think about Paul, right? Paul talks, the Bible talks about Paul having a thorn in his side for all of his life. I think it has something to do with his sight. I think it's some of the leftover of what happened on the Damascus Road, that he has now has some sight issues, and they have to bear with him in that. I, uh, just speculation, but I think that's a good chance that's what it is. And God never healed him of it. Either way, whatever the thorn is, God never heals him of it. This is Paul. I mean, let's think about Jesus. He's getting ready to endure the agony of the cross, and God does not fix that situation. So my encouragement would be, not that we can't pray for healing. I, should, I think in many cases we should pray for healing. But I think we should be very careful when we do that, thinking and trusting God that maybe healing's not His plan. I think we can ask Him for it, and we should ask Him for it. But that asking and that desire for that healing being trumped by a desire that God's will be done and that God's priority be the priority and not my priority. Jesus here says there's a greater priority. And so Jesus didn't come to heal everybody. He denied healing by moving on. He could have done it, right? Now think about this. Jesus could have, before he left town, go, everybody in the city healed, and then walks on. Does he do that? No. Because he had a different priority. It wasn't because of a lack of faith or because they didn't send enough offering or because they didn't rub their green prayer cloth in the right way. He had a different priority. He had a different plan. There were no rituals prescribed to the people. If you just do this before I leave, you'll be good. But instead, what was happening is the Creator was present, and He was recreating in their presence, bringing about healing, this new creation where there would be no pain, no sorrow. He was bringing this about, but that, but that is just symbolic of an ultimate spiritual healing that will be a reality in the future. So we need to, we need to move on. So he was teaching people who the Messiah was and what the Messiah would do before he actually did it. And that was the substitution on the cross. So he's teaching them that who he is. He's the Messiah and that he has this priority that the world would know who Jesus is. So here we are at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. This will be what will consume the rest of the book of Luke. We'll see the life and uh, particularly the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I have, a couple, I have a thought, a couple thoughts in closing. If you're not a Christian, if you've not submitted your life to Jesus, Jesus came fundamentally not to heal your body, but to save your soul. Um, this is why we put a priority on preaching here as a church, guys. Um, it's because it's through the Word, it's through this. This is guaranteed to sanctify and bring about change in our lives. It's not good thoughts that might might that Matt might have. It's not the cool series or graphics that we might have. It's not those things. Those are not 
promise to bring about change in our lives, but the Word of God is. And God's concerned about our spiritual health. So think about this. God can heal, but God will save. Does that make sense? God can heal when He wants to, but God will save. This is His priority. So here Jesus turns away from people in need when He could have healed many more to go put priority on teaching the Word. If you are a Christian, I think we've, for the practical thing for us to walk away is that we must put a priority on the work of the gospel. Right, right? The kingdom thing, right? How does the gospel then speak into that? I think when we think about their kingdom versus God's kingdom and how the gospel speaks into that kingdom, that also gives us a context through which to enter the gospel into their lives. So I think many times we, we like to take the gospel and Jesus died for your sins and redemption and all that, and we just drop it on them like it's like an atomic bomb. And they look at us like, where did that come from? Like, right, you know what I'm saying? Ever done that? Huh? Uh, like, they, they go, you just drop the gospel on them, and they're like, where did that come from? Like, I mean, I've done it. <laughs> uh, but if we think about their life and where their kingdom doesn't match up with God's kingdom, then the gospel can fix that. And that helps give a context that also requires you knowing them and spending time with them, right? This is what Jesus did. So if you're a Christian, I think it helps prioritize the work of the gospel. So we can, we can utilize like physical needs, because and, and, God's concerned about those too, right? He's not just concerned about the spiritual. But ultimately, all those physical needs point to that we have a spiritual need. Um, so... You know, we can help alleviate other kinds of suffering. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it's where is our priority at? Priority should be in helping them see and live and the gospel. So, again, how do we help? Just some thoughts on proclaiming the gospel. Again, kingdom, kingdom of God, where does their kingdom not line up with the kingdom of God? And then insert the gospel there. It's very practical, like we're just thinking recently and working through some marriage situations. And just think about where does their marriage not line up the way God's marriage lines up? And then just speak the gospel. How does the gospel fix that? Right? So for instance, maybe I'm not gracious towards my spouse in my marriage. Well, that's ultimately, so if we think about the gospel, how does the gospel display grace? Well, it's all of us who completely did not deserve an ounce of God's mercy and love and grace sends His Son Jesus to die on the cross and exercises grace towards us so that we might be saved. And if I actually believe that, right? If I actually believe that God has been gracious towards me, then I have to live in light of that. So if I'm not being gracious towards my spouse, it's all of you because I probably don't believe that God's been gracious towards me. Or I don't, maybe I don't understand the extent to which God's been gracious towards me. Maybe I think I'm this good and God only had to be this gracious. But when I understand I'm, you know, my righteousness is as filthy rags, and then it, the rest of it was made up by God's grace, then how can I not then be gracious towards my spouse? So that's how the gospel speaks into that marriage. Well, it's, he or she's not being gracious towards them. Well, what is it about the gospel that's not a reality in their lives? But again, understand God's been gracious to me in the gospel. This is how this affects their marriage. It's speaking the gospel into their kingdom where it does not line up with what God's kingdom looks like. Right? So, 
there's much we can gain from the life of Christ. When we look at Christ, who is Christ? There's much we can gain. The way to live a life. We can gain some good teaching. We can gain a model. Faith. I think, though, the greatest thing that we can gain from the life of Christ is forgiveness for our sins. The repentance that He would eventually pave the way for and pay the price for us on the cross. And so I want to encourage us, guys, as we look at Jesus and we study Him here in the book of Luke, um, that you would view Him maybe, in a, maybe not necessarily in a different way than you have all of your life, but in a more full, rich way that we would see Jesus for who He is and not who we want Him to be necessarily. So I want to pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Father, um, thank you for this time. Uh, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for um, thank you for uh, just showing us who you are. Father, you are so good to us that we did not deserve Jesus coming to this earth and dying for our sins, living this model and this life for us. And, but, Father, out of your graciousness, you chose to do so. And, Father, I just pray that in our daily lives that we would not functionally live as though we believe Jesus to be just some good person for us to live like, but instead would see him as our Savior, as our Redeemer, one to whom we submit to, uh, one to whom we follow, one to whom we look to in times of pain and struggle, one to whom we trust. One that we relate to. Father, um, let's thank you. And he's more than just some good teacher. He's the Son of God. He's our Savior. Father, I thank you for Him. Father, I thank you for your love for us. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with us as we sing one last song?